welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Politically Direct, Rachel Maddow, and Tom Hartman. If you look at the 10 hottest years ever measured, they've all occurred in the last 14 years. And the hottest of all was 2005. The scientific consensus is that we are causing global warming. The film is already open in New York and Los Angeles and will be opening on June 2nd nationwide. Lori David, welcome to Politically Direct. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is an outstanding movie, and I don't say that simply because I'm in it. Uh, I, you, thanks to you, I had the great privilege of actually seeing the, the filmed lecture that uh, is the core of this movie. And we will hear throughout this program, we're going to hear clips of Vice President Gore's teaching of the science of global warming, which is at the core of this. Now, that sounds, on the surface of it, like it's got to be dull as dishwater for people to come to a film lecture and yet what you and your co-producer Lawrence Bender and by the way Bender and David David and Bender again a happy combination but what you've done is to take this and make it the most extraordinary journey that people have it is opened up so that you feel actually like you're a part of what's going on and it's an astounding work congratulations thank you we have to give a lot of credit to the director davis guggenheim who is by the way when he first came on this project knew nothing about global warming is that right that is right and, and you should ask him about that when he I will. started it's coming up later in the program good but i have to say i saw gore do this presentation a couple of years ago and i found it absolutely riveting I didn't find it, you know, boring in any way, and I don't think the audience will. Because to have all the information so clearly explained, this is so personal. Right. This issue is so personal. When you're in the room with him, that's how, and I was, again, thanks to you, I had the privilege of seeing that lecture, and, and he's done it by his own account a thousand times. Right. It is absolutely stunning. I came away that day, and I think I talked to you about it right after, mm -hmm. I was transformed by the experience, and it changes you when you see this. You cannot go back once you walk through that door you don't go back again and it is the most important thing for everyone and I want to say this very clearly and we say it throughout this program people need to take the time it is an absolutely wonderful experience in the theater because of Davis Guggenheim but it's something that when you leave it you're never the same again right one of the inconvenient truths of this film is that you are going to go in the theater one person and come out another person let me ask you, I really want to talk about your journey to get to this point. You started not as an environmental activist. This isn't something you've been doing since you were a kid. You had what you refer to as a light bulb moment. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Well, I became a mom, and, mm -hmm. that, and it happened to coincide with the explosion of SUVs. I mean, I was it's 1994, right? It was around there. I was all of a sudden out on the streets in my neighborhood pushing a stroller. All my friends worked. Everyone worked. I had always worked. And... Um, you know, I was out, and every single friend of mine had an SUV, and every car that went by me was this giant SUV. And you live in Los Angeles. And I so. live in Los Angeles, and it started to really concern me, because I understood, well, well, wait, SUVs had really low fuel economy standards and were double the carbon dioxide pollution. Wasn't there a book that came out that there you There was read? a book that came out by Keith Bradshaw, and he was a New York Times reporter, and it was all about what SUVs were going to do to this country. And I think it's so interesting. You know, he got transferred when the book came out to China. And I always, I always wondered about that. Like, wh wh why is this guy in China? He needs to be here talking about this problem. As people who are listening to this will see in the film, the problem in China is extraordinary. And yet, they have already taken steps that 
put them in greater control of their emissions, uh, their automobile emissions, than we are. Right. You can't sell American cars in China because they have higher fuel economy standards than us. You've got to love that. Well, that's, you know, that's something that has to change. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that have to change. So, again, the epiphany for you, this light bulb moment, you were pushing a baby stroller, right? right? And some right. of this exhaust just washed right. over you? Yes, and everybody had these cars, and all my friends had them. And, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the environment, talking about national security, talking about where, you know, our dependence on oil, and yet my friends were driving them. Nobody was connecting the dots between what this car was doing and what we were doing to the planet. But one of the things that's extraordinary in this film is Gore makes the point very, very clearly that popular media manages to try and find, quote-unquote, fair and balanced coverage when absolutely all the peer-reviewed articles, 900 of them, I think, are talked about in this film, make it clear. It's 900 to zero. Right. There is no disagreement that global warming is an immediate and urgent phenomenon, and yet popular media breaks it down into almost 50-50. Right. Well, it's infuriating, and it's the opposite of actually fair and balanced, that we've come to a place where they say, okay, well, we present one side, and then we pre present the other side, and that's fair and balanced. And it's not fair and balanced. It's not fair and balanced when one side represents 2,000 scientists from 100 countries, and the other side represents ExxonMobil-funded skeptics. Truth is not a matter of opinion. And I've been trying to make this point every week on this program, and that is, of course, what has happened with standards of journalism. Journalism is now about allowing truth to become debated. And proof is not required for this kind of opinion. That's the place we're in, and that's what's extraordinary about this movie. You don't leave room in this film for any doubt. I started to say that when you had this epiphany, you, you thought for a while about where's the knight in shining armor? Who's going to come along? And again, Al Gore was doing it, but there was no one crystallizing it. And you became the knight in shining armor. You, and truly, as any one citizen can do it, but doesn't, and it, what you've done is absolutely astounding, because you said, you know, I've had enough. And by just making that one statement, it's, it's what Rosa Parks did, it's what that person in Tiananmen Square did, one person can make a difference. And what you did, and I, I'm not saying this because you're sitting in front of me, I'm saying it because the end result is that people are now talking about this issue. And it is the most important thing that any of us can do. You started something called StopGlobalWarming.org, and you got other people to march with you. Tell us about that. Right. Well, you're very generous, David. I, you know, the, the thing that I think I've helped do is to communicate this in a way that people can hear it, as opposed to, you know, the, the, the science being too wonky. Or, I mean, I've, you know, one of the things that I tried to do this, I mean, really, after the election, it was, you know, when Kerry lost, you know, I sobbed for days and days and days. And it wasn't so much because my candidate had lost, which he had. It was really more because I knew that the issue of global warming wasn't going to get solved right. while, you know, with the current administration. And I, that's unacceptable. And I, to this moment, believe that we will start dealing with it in a meaningful way while these guys are still in office because we have to. And, and because they can't resist it any further. It's we, a tide that's going to wash over Because the as people well. are going to demand it. That's right. And hopefully this film will help it. And one of the other things that I started was is a virtual march because um, we haven't, you know, we're at a place where we haven't acknowledged that the globe is warming, that humans were causing it, and that we want solutions. And it's, you know, I launched it with Senator John McCain and Bobby Kennedy, and I think we're. We're getting close to 400,000 people who have signed on at stopglobalwarming.org, and hopefully everyone listening will join it. We're going to put a link to it at our site, politicallydirectradio.com, and it is stopglobalwarming.org. And one of the things that I love in going to the site is you see all of the virtual marchers, and, and it is an astounding group of people, Barack Obama and John McCain. And, and two football teams, right? And and businesses and governors and mayors and, and, and ordinary citizens and MTV. And, and even your husband, Larry. David. And he, you know, if he can virtually march, then no one else, his favorite no, way to do it. Exactly. No one else has an excuse. But in fact, one of the things, again, if people bring along their friends and you have an opportunity to sign up other people. And I believe you have 19,000 people marching right now. Is that I'm right? doing really well and I'm, I far surpassed Bobby Kennedy. Yes, and which it has is been the competition. Unbelievably irritating to him. Yes. And, and Bobby, if you're listening, you're slacking off. We're talking with Lori David. She's the producer of An Inconvenient Truth, which opens nationwide on June 2nd. You can see it now in New York and Los Angeles. Lori, about the film itself, what this movie is about, it's not a downer. In fact, you come out very optimistic. You also come out, there's something incredibly beautiful about the way this film is shot because it makes you appreciate this planet. You see the planet from afar. You see it in beautiful scenes, beautiful settings where Al Gore grew up. Mm -hmm. And 
it makes us treasure what we have. And that, again, is the powerful part of this message. This is not about seeing just the horror. It's about seeing the beauty of this earth that we are the stewards of. Well, that's the idea is that, you know, things that we take for granted are going to change, you know, like, for example, the leaves turning at, you know, a certain time of the year or snowy winters. Or penguins and polar bears. Or penguins and polar bears. Which will be gone. Seriously, uh, polar bears are drowning, you know, because there's so not enough ice and when they swim further and further out to find it. I mean, that's like the basic instinct of the polar bear. Are we going to sit back and allow that to happen? What do you see as the future of this film? Everyone that I've talked to who's seen it, the immediate reaction is it's got to be in schools. Right. Kids have got to see it. How are you planning to do that? Well, there's 1,500 kids from Beverly Hills High going to see it as we speak. Um, Somebody bought out um, all the tickets and and gave them to their school. So that's another thing people could do is is for your school, your kids' class, buy enough seats and send them as a field trip to go see this. But I also hope that there's going to be a DVD and, um, you know, obviously this is just the beginning. I'm I'm really hoping that people... I know my Hanukkah gift this year. Right, exactly. Give exactly, the DVD, but we're also going to try to get into schools. But if, the thing is, people can actually impact the distribution of this film by going to see it. If you, you know, buy a ticket and bring a friend, and the more shows that sell out, the more cities this movie is going to. We're talking about this film. Every opportunity we can get on Air America Radio, and again, go to politicallydirectradio.com and go to stopglobalwarming.org. Sign up for the virtual march. Join Lori David. Join your friends and neighbors, because that's what this is about. This is something that each and every one of us doesn't have an option not to do. And I'm proud that you've joined us on this program today, Lori David, and it's really a pleasure to have you. David, thank you so much for everything you're doing. This is really not a political issue so much as a moral issue. Our next guest has been called many names, lots good, some not good. He's been called congressman, senator, vice president, Democratic presidential nominee. Uh, We sometimes call him the should-be president of the United States. Here on The Rachel Maddow Show, we have recently decided to add another a couple uh, potential names to the list. We're considering the term political rock star. We're also considering cynic slayer. An inconvenient truth. Opened this week in New York and L.A. It opens elsewhere in the country this weekend. It's mandatory viewing for Rachel Maddow Show listeners. And Al Gore joins us live here on The Rachel Maddow Show. Mr. Gore, thank you for joining us. Wow, I'm going to change my business card. (laughs) Cynic Slayer. It's kind of nice, isn't it? I love that. You'll get the Dungeons and Dragons vote. (laughs) (laughs) How are you this morning? I'm great. I, I saw you last night here in New York City at Town Hall. And when you walked on the stage, I felt like uh, the the audience all but started taking off their undergarments and throwing them on the stage. <laughs> the the political rock star thing. I can't imagine it's been like this for all of the last six years. Oh come on! It's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> is, I mean, is it is it? You must be thrilled with the response to the film. Well, I'm very. I, I'm. I, I am. Um, mainly because it it increases the odds uh, significantly that. People, that more people will hear this message and see this message um, in a shorter period of time. We face a, a planetary emergency. Uh, the climate crisis is so uh, dangerous, and it can be solved. But the key is getting people to look at it clearly, understand it clearly, and then demand action. Take action themselves, uh, but also uh, demand action from the political leaders in both parties. So I'm, I am happy with the reaction to the movie. It's been great. And the book is getting a similar um, reaction, also uh, titled An Inconvenient Truth. Mm-hmm. And I hope everybody will see the movie and buy the book and go to the website, climatecrisis.net, and be a part of the solution to this crisis instead of part of the problem. The, the reaction to the film, to the book, to this, to your real resurgence in the public eye around this issue has been very strong among Air America listeners and among people uh, who, like me, are very sympathetic to the cause. It's also been very strong on the right. There are uh, I love carbon dioxide romantic lullabies being aired by the Competitive <laughs> Enterprise Institute. But I, I, I wanted yeah. to ask you, though, about specifically what President 
President Bush has said a couple of times this week. He has said that uh, that we we need to figure out, we need to put aside the question of whether we have caused global warming or whether natural causes have have led to it. What is he talking about? Do you know? Uh, well, that's the Exxon Mobil view, hmm. and uh, if you have the entire global scientific community on one side and um, the largest polluter on the other side, um, and you have to choose uh, between whose uh, scientific uh, view you're going to take, who, who would you pick? Well, yeah. uh, it seems to be an easy choice in this White House, unfortunately. But I do want to say one thing, uh, Rachel, about uh, the differing reactions to the movie. There has been a, uh, I mean, to me the most interesting reaction is that there's been a surge of uh, support from Republicans and conservatives and a, and a series of articles uh, and columns written by people who say, I was a skeptic and now I'm not. Yeah. And 85 conservative evangelical ministers publicly broke with Bush and Cheney on this issue. Several corporate CEOs who supported them have now broken with them on this issue. And at the grassroots level, you're seeing some remarkable things. Even, dare I say, Bill O'Reilly yesterday mm-hmm. uh, endorsed uh, the movie. Or, in effect, he said Al Gore is right on this issue, and uh, and uh, a lot of others are, too. Did, so, that, did that make you doubt yourself? I'm sorry? <laughs> did that make you doubt yourself when you heard <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I mean, in all honesty, I have argued for some time that this should not be seen as a political issue, right. but as a a moral issue, and those of us who have long been, uh, like you and me, uh, advocating uh, the, the scientific view of this and uh, a response, I think that we ought to do our best to to welcome uh, converts, to uh, invite people on the other side of these political fences uh, to to uh, to join us in yes. this, so the the stakes are just too high. And, you know, and it's it's a not only a question, a scientific question, and a or a political question, and it undoubtedly has to be at some level, but it's also a strategic question. And one of the ways you've tried to move people on this issue is to talk about try to try, try to get rid of, around some of the despair and talk about an environmental success story in the effort to save the ozone letter, layer, yeah. uh, where there was a political response, this idea that we would get rid of chlorofluorocarbons. And one of the things I was really struck by is your, you've explained that the industries, the, the chlorofluorocarbon polluters did push back on the whole ozone layer thing, but they didn't push back ultimately so hard that they stopped progress. What's right. the difference between the CFC industry and how much they pushed back on that and the ExxonMobil's of today and how hard they're pushing on global warming? Uh, interesting question. I think that um, the the role of CO2 is obviously much larger in our economy than, than CFCs. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason. The, okay. the oil companies and coal companies are much richer and more powerful than the the chemical companies were, and I think that's also part of it. But I think actually the the biggest change in the last 20 years since we had that debate is that the the conversation of democracy has changed, and the influence of special interests uh, and lobbyists has grown dramatically, even as the influence of uh, the average citizen wielding knowledge uh, and strong opinions has been uh, has has shrunk, and uh, we've got to fight back about that. And 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 Air, you know, Air America is a big part of the of the pushback. The internet's part of the pushback. We have to keep the internet free for a lot of reasons, but this is one of the main ones. But and I think we see in a lot of areas where. Uh, harmful consequences come when, when the people's voice is diminished and the uh, voice of the special interest controls the the result uh, mm. because they're not they're 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 almost never motivated by the public interest and their interests are almost always in direct uh, contradiction to the public interest. So we we you know we have in addition to the climate crisis we have a democracy crisis. And we have to fix both of them, but uh, at the same time, unfortunately. But the climate crisis is urgent. It is grave. We do not have time to uh, to, to 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 fool around with a lot of uh, 
uh, unnecessary partisanship and dueling uh, before we fix this. We have got to start fixing it immediately. In case you're just joining us, our guest is former Vice President Al Gore, who is talking to us about his new film and new book, An Inconvenient Truth. Um, I understand that um, in, in building activists around this, that you have to get people to change their own behavior, not only because our individual behavior matters, but because that can also be galvanizing to us as activists about the way that we can change. Global warming is such a massive problem, and it, has, it is a global problem, and it has global causes. Are we really taking seriously solutions that are big enough to reverse the problem? Do, are, are there big enough solutions out there that we could make a difference in the next five years, in the next ten years? Do we need to be doing stuff on a massive scale? Yes, we do, and there are solutions out there. But right now, they are, I have to be candid, outside the boundary of what is considered politically realistic and feasible in our system. Uh, but that's just another way of saying we we have to... Uh, get the knowledge of this crisis to more people so that we expand the boundaries of what's politically possible. The the, the political system is, uh, it, it can seem like it's moving at a snail's pace, as it usually does, mm. but it has one thing in common with the climate system. It's nonlinear. It can move slowly and then cross a tipping point and then move swiftly and, and, and uh, adopt a, a brand new pattern. Uh, in 1941, for example, it was absurd to think America could build a thousand airplanes. But in 1943, that was a really low number. Yeah. And after 9/11, if the president had not only uh, rallied the country, uh, standing on the rubble, and invaded Afghanistan to go after Osama bin Laden, both uh, both uh, things he did well. Uh, if instead of invading Iraq, he had then said, okay, look, we're going to keep going after the terrorists, and while we're at it, we're going to get independent of oil and coal, and we're going to stop relying on this unstable part of the world, the Middle East, and we, and we are going to save our environment by shifting to renewable energy. I, I think that at such a moment, the people would follow, and I think that we are going to uh, see – Many uh, opportunities, unfortunately, uh, in the months and years ahead when leadership can make a difference. After Hurricane Katrina, right. millions uh, experienced it as a wake-up call on global warming. We're nearing a new hurricane season. I hope the, the, uh, the scientists are wrong that, that, it's, uh, that it may be a bad one. But, but we, we cannot just sit back and endure this without without creating the potential for much larger changes than now seem possible. And I think the people are ahead of the politicians. I think that uh, we are close to uh, a galvanizing moment when the people are going to demand that politicians in both parties, frankly, start offering meaningful solutions. I have only one question for you left. I know you have a lot of interviews to do today, and I really appreciate your time. I do. I feel like I have to make a little bit of a confession to you, though. Um, last night at Town Hall, you said that, uh, that if every single person in Town Hall, a few hundred people in New York City, uh, became a committed uh, climate change, um, uh, global warming activists, that was enough people, enough committed activists to change the country. I was a committed AIDS activist for a very long time. And when, when you announced that you were running for president uh, in the year 2000 in New Hampshire, I personally interrupted your, your announcement um, by shouting and I had a banner about AIDS drugs for Africa. And I don't I'm not trying to apologize for having done that. I realize it created an uncomfortable situation for you. But that confrontation has really worked for the AIDS movement. And we moved your campaign at that time. And it resulted in a whole lot of meetings. And I, and I appreciate you not sticking the Secret Service on me and my friends. Um, but that type of confrontation has been very effective for the AIDS movement. And you have been on, on the receiving side of that type of confrontation. And now, as an activist outside the system, you're really creating a whole and galvanizing a whole lot of new activists. If, if Condoleezza Rice is declaring that she's running for president in 2008 in New Hampshire, what is, what is the new me, the climate change activist who's interrupting her? What does that banner say? What do you want people to be asking for in very specific terms? Uh, well, 
I, I don't know. I can't advise you on that. I, <clears throat> I, 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 I doubt she's going to be a, a candidate. Uh, and I, I mean, I think that there are a lot of things that people uh, can do um, within the system. I think that that uh, people who are deeply uh, and passionately committed uh, within either party uh, can make a huge difference. I think. I think confronting candidates uh, personally with uh, passionate uh, and well-reasoned appeals over and over again hmm. and convincing them that they that you're not going to go away until they uh, until they respond in a in a thoughtful and thorough way is uh, is a time-honored and tested approach and if enough people do it uh, then the politicians are going to respond. Al Gore, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it, and thank you for stepping up so uh, articulately and bravely on this issue. You're changing the country a lot right now. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. I hope everybody goes to see the movie, An Inconvenient Truth. Thank you. Al Gore, former vice president and uh, the star of An Inconvenient Truth, a film that opened in New York and L.A. already this week. It opens all across the country uh, this weekend. It is mandatory viewing for Rachel Maddow Show listeners this weekend. If you are within driving distance of a screening, uh, happy to have Al Gore with us. Happy that he still wasn't holding a grudge against me <laughs> from 2000. <laughs> Right now, Harry Binswanger. Hey, Harry. Hi, how are you, Tom? Just great. Harry is with the, he specializes, you, you specialize in philosophy and capitalism with the Ayn Rand Institute, A-Y-N-R-A-N-D dot O-R-G. Ayn Rand Institute, of course, the, the holders of the holy grail of objectivism these days. Yep. Uh, that that uh, philosophy that property rights are above all else and uh, that has made its way into uh, contemporary libertarian and conservative thinking, although I realize you guys are neither libertarians nor conservatives. Right. Um, our question for the day, why should we destroy the Arctic tundra just to protect profits for the oil industry? To protect profits for the oil industry. Profit yeah. is uh, a right. Profit is a good thing. Profit is the source of all economic growth. Profit represents man's conquest of the environment, which should be conquered and made to serve his ends. When that's that's quite a mouthful, Harry. Yeah, I thought I'd get a lot in right at the beginning. There. You, you did. You done good. Thanks. So so when pro, so are you suggesting that if I make a profit, if I let's say I sell you something. And it makes you very sick, but I made a profit on it that your sickness, your your right to wellness, shall we say, uh, does not trump my right to a profit? There's no such thing as right to wellness. The issue is was there voluntary consent or was there fraud? If I sell you uh, a hamburger laced with poison, that's murder. If I sell... Um, something that makes you sick because of a physical cause that I was negligent in uh, not removing, and I represented to you that this was safe, then that's a, a fraudulent action. That's force. That's not voluntary consent. I'm talking about profit, which means that you take inputs which have a certain value on the market, and you work them up until they have a higher value. So to use, and I think it's one of the reasons why it's important for us to have this conversation about this right now, Al Gore is just being, you know, viciously attacked by the, there's no such thing as global warming folks out there, uh, funded in large part by the oil industry. And the the whole debate about uh, this is coming to the fore. Plus, uh, oil is now above $50, $55 a barrel. Uh, by law, once the price of oil goes above $55 a barrel, all oil on federal land becomes free to the oil companies if they simply have permission to drill for it, and therefore they are salivating at the prospect of getting the oil up in the up in the uh, Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So, if we were to use Harry your um, values model, your your set of values, which you just did a very good job of articulating. Would it not be proper to say that drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge represents one of two things? It either represents a legitimate compromise between harm to the environment 
or you know, even perhaps harm is too loaded a word, a modification of the environment in exchange for a product that we need and profits that you're saying are a good thing. Or it represents fraud in as much as an industry is trying to get its hands on that oil and it's selling us phony reasons for trying to get its hand on, hands on that oil. Do you accept that those are two possible realities? No. I don't accept either one of those. The first one is closest to what I would accept. The uh, man has a moral obligation to transform the environment to make his life better. That's what morality is all about, reshaping matter to serve human needs. It is not a compromise to modify the environment. Man's survival consists of modifying the environment, as indeed every organism. So then the third option would be if we drill in Anwar and it kills off a whole bunch of species and destroys one of the most ecologically fragile places in the entire planet, uh, that's a good thing. Plus, we get the oil, and that's a good thing. I, I wouldn't accept the characterization of killing off a lot of species. There's no species that would be killed off. Uh, but, again, occasional die-off, about, you know, one a century, is fine with me. I don't miss the dodo or the saber-toothed tiger. I'd rather have cheap oil, cheap gasoline. Uh, you know, I'm a progressive in this sense. I'm, I'm uh, like the left used to be. Until uh, mid-century, I think that progress, increasing wealth, is crucially important. Uh, that's uh, one difference from objectivism and of many and the religious right. Of course, objectivism is atheist, as anyone who's read uh, Atlas Shrugged knows. Uh, but uh, wherefore? Um, man's survival on this earth, not pie in the sky as the left used to put it. But Harry Binswanger, if man's survival on this earth is yeah. being potentially harmed by the, by the toxic exhaust that is produced whenever oil is burned, and I think you'll acknowledge that there are uh, poisons when, that are produced when oil is burned, if, if man's survival on this earth is potentially harmed by altering the environment as a consequence of all the carbon dioxide we're pulling out of the ground and putting into the atmosphere, or all the carbon in various forms, carbon dioxide, methane, and other forms, mm -hmm. then, then shouldn't those be part of the equation? Uh, gee, I'm, I'm a little hard put to answer that because I don't agree with the premise, but if I take it on your, uh, on your uh, description, yes. Anything, you have to be long-range. Anything that threatens future survival is, is a bad thing. Then why are you but in favor of drilling with, in Anwar? I don't agree that, uh, that uh, the scare, the alarmism of the environmental movement is at all warranted. I think it's all the reaction of the old left now become the new left. So now, hang on just a second yeah. here, Harry Binswanger. Um, mm -hmm. First of all, your characterization of yourself as a progressive, I, I, I just have to challenge. <laughs> I'm sorry, but uh, or maybe you know you're saying the, the the term from the 19th century. Although I would say even then, those progressives were mostly involved in the labor unions and labor movement, which I know that you don't think should have power. But right. in, in in any case, the the Science Magazine which, you know, the, the publication of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the AAAS, yeah. one of the most solid scientific organizations One of the most highly politicized. One of the most highly politicized since the 60s. I which remember. takes no political positions whatsoever. Oh, no, it's completely leftist. They have never endorsed legislation. Please, I've read the uh, Science Magazine and the AAAS since 1964, and they... Uh, I've been a member of the AAAS for a decade, Harry. I have never seen a single, worked. even an, I've never even seen an editorial that talked about politics. Well, may I, you know, it's possible that, you know, the way we think we don't speak with an accent, it's everybody else who speaks with an accent. If you see things that you agree with, it doesn't look like ideology. It looks like, well, this is just communist. Okay, well, let's say for a moment, Harry, that the AAAS is a communist organization. It's as left-wing as they can get. Mm -hmm. They did an, an analysis of all the peer review articles, articles published in publications mm -hmm. that require a peer review, where scientists have to submit things to their peers and actually back up their science. A, a, nearly a 1,000 peer review articles over the last... 15 years on on climate change and global warming and not one not 
one of those articles suggested that there was any, quote, debate on this. And all of them suggested that global warming is happening and that man-made emissions, which in, in large part from oil, played some role in it. The debate is uh, what the extent of that role is. That's not possible. That's not possible. I know Richard Linzer at MIT, uh, this, uh, was it Fred Schmidt? There, there are scientists. Fred Smith. Yeah. Yeah, he's, not, he's never been published in a peer-reviewed publication. And Richard Linzer has. Not to and, the best. And it's, not, it's just not possible that there are thousands and not one questioning it. Uh, I don't believe that this... for a minute. That's, that, that's just impossible because there were uh, 17,000 scientists. But, you know, do we want to get off on this? There are 17,000 scientists who signed a web petition. Now, these are people who claim they have science degrees. Yeah. Surely there must be all two of those people who published yeah. You know, claiming that global warming doesn't exist. Now, my position on global warming is I hope it's true, but I have no reason to believe it is at present. Joining us now is the star of An Inconvenient Truth and the author of a new book, also called An Inconvenient Truth. And it's an honor to welcome him to the program. Former Vice President Al Gore, welcome to Politically Direct. Well, thank you, David. Good to be with you. Mr. Vice President, early in the program, we heard from producers Lori David and Lawrence Bender and from director Davis Guggenheim, who said that they were, uh, Lawrence and Davis said that they were at the Cannes Film Festival with you, and they described the reception you received. They said it was like traveling with a rock star. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I assume you didn't bring the guitar today, and I understand that. But truthfully, are you surprised at the passion that's surrounding both the film and you right now? Well, I'm old enough, David, to uh, enjoy that without getting it out of perspective. I do think that people respond passionately to the issue because many have felt for a long time that it's simply bizarre that we're facing this most dangerous crisis in all of history and our political leaders are looking the other way and pretending it doesn't exist and adopting uh, the viewpoint of Exxon Mobil and the largest polluters uh, and rejecting the opinions of the scientific community worldwide. Uh, scientists who are now practically uh, screaming from the rooftops, well, look at this, it's an emergency, we have to react. and. I think when people hear the truth about it, presented in a way that makes it accessible and also entertaining even, they, they get excited very positively. They get excited. And I was in the audience, as you know, and in fact, am briefly in the film. And I want to thank you for not leaving Everybody's me Everybody's talking about your cameo, David. You, you know, I, I could have been left on the cutting room floor, and I know it was you that kept me in, and I'm grateful. And I no, no, it was <laughs> the uh, focus groups. It, it just showed such a difference when you were in. I thought you weren't going to use focus groups anymore. You, you said that after the 2000 <laughs> that was campaign. David and Lawrence <laughs> <laughs> But I want to talk about the film quite seriously, because it's a stunning and mesmerizing piece of work that works on so many levels and I've said we've done this entire program today about Inconvenient Truth but I want to talk about some specifics in the movie and in fact uh, both Lori and Lawrence said when you talk to the vice president ask him about some of the specific scenes one of them the scenes that affected me the most is your ride to the top of the CO2 graph <laughs> now we're on radio here yeah. so can you describe for our listeners what that is and what happens well uh, the <laughs> there's a 50-foot screen that shows the historical record of the temperature on the earth and the co2 in the atmosphere both going back six hundred and fifty thousand years right and then as it comes to the present era there is a dramatic change and the co2 line because of man-made pollution has suddenly jumped up much higher than it has ever been as far back as we can measure putting the lie to this whole idea that this is a cyclical thing yes absolutely and of course the co2 molecules that are created by man-made activity have distinctive chemical signatures and this is not controversial but the scientific debates over but in any case the visual contrast that you're describing here it comes when the co2 line shoots up and in order to emphasize the point I actually get on a, 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 a kind of a mechanical lift to go up uh, to the top of it and then demonstrate 
what is in prospect uh, during the next 45 years when we reach a doubling of pre-industrial levels. And you can see very clearly uh, what that implies for world temperatures. And it's astonishing that we are now able to have as big an impact on the entire planet as we are. We're the largest force of nature, but we haven't taken responsibility for that yet. Well, if people want to see an action movie, they need to go to this and see you hanging on for dear life at the top of that bucket. Because it, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it is a it great was, moment. Uh, a daredevil act. You know where that came from? In the early days of my uh, slideshow, uh, actually before I even sh uh, used slides, I used props, and I used to draw that line with my hand across the stage, and I'd have a young assistant in the wings waiting with a ladder, and he'd pull it out, and I'd climb up the ladder to show how absurdly high the line is going now. Uh, during one presentation, one of the ladder's legs got partly off the edge of the stage, and when I reached to show the ultimate range of it, the ladder and me both went toppling off the stage. Uh -huh. I was unhurt, but I think a, a moment that that particular audience uh, remembered. And I told the director, Davis Guggenheim, about that, and that's when the idea of that um, mechanical lift was introduced into the movie set. Also because they could insure you that way. Uh, <laughs> yes. the, the second part of the film, Mr. Vice President, that got me, and it got to everyone I know who's seen it, is the melting ice in Greenland and Antarctica. Yeah. Um, this is just stunning. You describe and on screen we see computer models of what happens in Antarctica or Greenland. I mean, it's even if half of the ice shelf breaks, sea levels are projected to rise as much as 20 feet, which could wipe out parts of Manhattan, uh, Florida. You show Beijing, Shanghai, Calcutta. It's stunning. Yeah, and um, unfortunately, it's not an unrealistic projection at all. As uh, Jim Hansen, the distinguished scientist, uh, said last evening, uh, the last time uh, on Earth temperatures reached the levels that are now in prospect, sea levels were more than 40 feet higher. And the most significant factor in affecting those a 20-foot sea level increase is Greenland and also West Antarctica. Either of them by themselves, if they melted or cracked up and slipped into the sea, would raise sea level 20 feet. If they both went, it would be 40 feet. And that would cause the dislocation of hundreds of millions of environmental refugees, uh, the areas that would be inundated include uh, Lower Manhattan, uh, the World Trade Center Memorial Site, 60 million people around Calcutta and Bangladesh would be displaced. It's just... Uh, Staggering is the word you're looking it, it, for. It really is. And at the same time that is happening, we would see, as another consequence, the desertification of large areas of the midsection of the United States and also in Europe and Asia. You show that in the film, that people talk about global warming in, in terms of the flooding and, and of the coastal areas, but you forget that at the same time, you're drying out. Just at the same time this is happening, you have places right now where this is going on that are drier than they've ever been in their history. Yeah, and that leads to more fires, and the hits just keep coming, unfortunately, <laughs> as they used to say. It's a challenge to our moral imagination to accept the reality of what the scientists say uh, we're doing to our only home, the planet Earth, and to accept moral responsibility for changing this destructive behavior is the challenge that we have got to uh, accept. The survival of human civilization is now at, at risk, and I know that uh, many people will think, oh, that couldn't be so. They're just trying to stampede uh, people to adopt this or that. I'm not. I'm just reflecting the global scientific consensus view. 2,000 scientists in 100 countries for 20 years have produced the strongest consensus that we've ever had, as strong as anything ever gets in science. And policymakers, some of whom are scared of losing the money from oil companies and coal companies, scared of uh, offending the special interests that give them such strong support are putting their heads in the sand and refusing to look at 
reality. Well, plainly, the ostrich is not an endangered species. <laughs> but you make that point in the film that, you know, the same thing happened with tobacco. When the science came out, there were ads for the uh, cigarettes that doctors smoked. I mean, yeah. you know, it's it's this is always going to go on. I want to shift gears to something. I'm just back from New Orleans. I had not oh, been yeah. there. And it, have, it, you have been. And I want to say something. I want to make mention of something that most people don't know about. You chartered a plane to take about 140 people, elderly and infirm people, to Tennessee with doctors at that time. You did it without press. And you didn't want press because you didn't want to get in the way of the fact that this was a rescue mission and it couldn't be delayed. And I've got to tell you something. Those of us who followed that at the time and saw what our government was not doing really have to say thank you for doing that. It was an extraordinary thing, and it's about public service even in private life, and it meant a lot. Well, that's nice of you to say. I've never talked about that and don't plan to. And you don't have to. When I was in New Orleans, I talked with a former Republican state senator, a man named Ben Baggert. And he says that we're losing multiple football fields worth of wetlands every day. Yeah. And that those wetlands are actually the natural buffer for these storms. Yeah. And so here we are. We're rebuilding the levees. But as we're continuing to lose the wetlands, it's almost as if we're putting a finger in the dike, but we're undoing everything else by uh, preventing nature from helping us to help ourselves. Yes, that's right. And uh, the Bush-Cheney administration uh, several years ago opened up those wetlands to commercial development, ignoring the warnings of the scientists and ecologists who tried to make that point. They are the natural buffer between the sea and the city of New Orleans. And there's some other places around the world where the same situation uh, exists. And the tendency, of course, has been to look at nature as if it's just there for us to uh, exploit and make money with however we want. Don't worry about it. But uh, we have a moral responsibility as stewards of nature to protect its integrity. And uh, just from a straight self-interest point of view, we need to understand what uh, the scientists call ecosystem services. I know that sounds like gobbledygook, but there are these fragile parts of nature that actually clean the water for us, right. protect coastal cities, uh, provide all kinds of uh, benefits that we don't necessarily put a price tag on, but turn out to be priceless. It's the balance, and I think someone yeah. once wrote a book about Earth and the Balance, but I, I don't remember <laughs> who that was. Mr. Vice President, I want to come back to the film. You say that people often go from denial that there's a global warming problem at all directly to despair, right. and despair that it's too late to stop it. And your concern is that they don't stop in between to try and do something about it. And yeah. I wanted to suggest to you a third D, which yeah. is determination. Yeah. It's the place clearly we, we need to be at, because it's still possible to undo a lot of the damage that yes, we've done. It is. it is. And moving from denial to despair has a certain uh, consistency about it. The people who travel that route, both the postures enable them to convince themselves that there's nothing they need to do. And your suggestion that determination is alternative to both is something I like very much. And the whole purpose of this movie, An Inconvenient Truth, and the book of the same title, is to change the minds of the American people and to create that sense of determination in both political parties to take action. I want to come back finally to the whole notion of political will because you talk about that in fact you say in the film that political will is a renewable resource and i want to make something very clear you've worked very very hard to make this a nonpartisan a bipartisan issue you brought a lot of republicans to the table you've been showing this to groups i think roger ailes came to a presentation you've had yeah. i understand that i even showed it to grover norquist's uh, group on case good lord that's going too far but but, <laughs> well, no, but, but no no it, 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 jokes aside the truth is that we can't afford this to be a partisan issue it clearly has to and i've heard that you have even bill o'reilly saying good things which is yeah. Which scary, is huh? scary and terrific at the same time. Yeah, it's terrific. I agree. But he, he's actually been open-minded on this particular issue for some time. But at the end of the film, and as the credits are rolling, and I want to encourage people, because, by the way, this is not an option. You're going out to see this film. Everyone is going to see this film. They're going to buy the book. We've done this entire program today about an inconvenient truth, and we're going to keep talking about it every week and every month and every year, because this is a, you'll pardon the expression, a sea change. There's no turning back. When you've seen this film and you've read this book, you're changed forever. 
But as the credits are rolling, you list the ways people can make a difference in affecting the political will of the nation. You encourage people to write their members of Congress, uh, and if that doesn't do any good, you encourage them to think about running for Congress, which I think is great, because frankly, it is citizen activism. Now, you might imagine where I'm going with this. <laughs> yeah, I can see this. Uh, you coming. can see this train coming down the track, <laughs> miles away, and I'm going to spare you the ritual of having to answer another question about whether or not you're going to run. I want to cut right through that and say the following. I absolutely believe that we need you, that our country needs you, and the very fact that you aren't seeking this job, quite frankly, I heard you sighing, please never sigh on a microphone again. <laughs> quite... <laughs> and and the, they die hard. Quite, quite frankly, and I want to say this, the fact that you don't want this job qualifies you as the man I want as my president. And, and, and well, I appreciate that. And I just want to make it clear, you have touched a chord here. And you've said, Mr. Vice President, that we have a democracy crisis as well as an environmental crisis. And the fact that we have a democracy crisis is because people feel disconnected from their politics having any meaning. Yeah. Yeah. And well, again, I feel that too. Well, no, you're, you're bringing meaning. You're bringing meaning back into politics, and uh, and thank you for that, sir. Well, I appreciate your comments very much. Well, you all have your assignment. The movie is playing in all major markets right now. And if you live in a smaller loser city, such as uh, Sacramento, as I do, or, I don't know, let's just throw out Minneapolis, someplace like that, then the show will most likely be opening this Friday, the 9th. And so, well, the... The, sh the short version of the story is that this show didn't come out last Friday as it was originally intended to because I had a headache. So, you know, whatever. It's a little late, but, you know, for, for people like me who I can't even go see the movie yet, it, it's, it's like it's coming out early instead of late. So think of it that way. Uh, you got three days to plan. For those of you who uh, live in those smaller loser cities, go to climatecrisis.net, and um, they, you know that they, they've got the great place to, you know, find a theater. When is it going to be available in your city? That whole thing. Um, unfortunately, in order to get full credit for the assignment, I am going to need copies of all of your ticket stubs. And under the extreme case that you are actually not able to go to the movie, I will be requiring a 400-word essay uh, to be submitted to me. Um, I mean, otherwise, it, I'm, I'm, I'll have no choice but to, uh, you know, fail you out of the class. And, uh, I mean, frankly, that's a mark that's going to follow you for the rest of your career, and I, I just, let's just not have that be an issue. I mean, it's, don't worry about it too much because if you go see the movie, then it's, you don't have to worry about that happening. That's what I'm saying. And by the way, is there anybody in the audience now who made fun of Al Gore before and really regrets it now? I mean, I didn't, but I kind of bought into those whole He's a boring guy, and, like, I kind of understand why people don't like him. But, uh, I mean, frankly, he's my number one pick. So, draft gore, as far as I'm concerned.
You've been listening to a proud member of the Progressive Podcast Network. Learn more at newmediarevolution.org.